It is good for us to be here together this morning, and I'm very thankful for the opportunity to be with you. I look out and see so many of my distant cousins, as well as a lot of old friends, and I'm thankful for the joy and the opportunity to be with you. I do want to tell you I love your pastor very dearly. He has been a very strong and a very good friend to me for many, many years. Being the pastor of his home church now for an extended period of time has caused me to love him even more and to have a greater appreciation uh, for not just his family, but for all of the folks in the community that he grew up in, and I'm thankful to the Lord for each and every one. I do want to ask an interest in your prayers this morning. I battled an upper respiratory infection for this past week. I was somewhat relieved to find out you can still actually get just regular sick. And, uh, but my, I have some trepidation about my voice holding out, so I'm going to have to modify the way I normally do things. And, but hopefully you'll be able to hear me well, and the Lord will bless us in this series of meetings. I want to invite your attention in the Old Testament to the book of Malachi. And in the book of Malachi this morning, we want to actually look at that fourth chapter, the last three verses that close out the Old Testament for us. The book of Malachi does bring us chronologically to the end of the Old Testament and introduces the so-called 400 silent year period between the Old Testament and the New. Malachi wrote this prophecy in a time of great apostasy in the nation of Israel. The people had turned away in every manner imaginable. And it's my desire and burden that in this series of meetings we're going to spend a good bit of time here in Malachi and mine so many of the details and points that Malachi made as well as look into the book of Zechariah and then some of the New Testament scriptures. Quite honestly, we live in an age of advanced and gross apostasy. We are no longer a Christian nation and we have not been for at least the last generation. Malachi is writing a very contemporary message. It will astound you as we look through his prophecy and examine it, just how contemporary and modern the problems that led to Israel's destruction were. I've said many times that either we are not anywhere near as sophisticated and as advanced as we think we are, or else these old Jews were very modern and far ahead of their time. Scripture tells us there is nothing new under the sun. It tells us that all the sins and transgressions and depravity of men have remained unchanged through the eons and the generations. Technology has just given us great advantages to sin more readily than perhaps any generation before us. And every technological advance cuts both ways has its advantages and its, its goodness and its virtue, and then of course it can be misused terribly. In this reading in Malachi, in the fourth chapter, I want to begin at the first verse. Scripture says, For behold, the day comes that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, and yea, that all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings. And ye shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. 
You shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under your soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, saith the Lord of hosts. Remember ye the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. I'll ask you if you would again, let us join for a short word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, as we gather this day, we are indeed thankful for the occasion that we have come. We are thankful for your written word. Father, we pray that as you inspired these men, particularly Malachi and so many others through the ages, to write these things, that you would similarly inspire us now, that we would be able to read and study and understand your word. And then, Father, we pray for courage and we pray for faith. And having learned the mistakes of the past and cautiously examining ourselves, Father, we truly would be resolved to repent from our ways, to turn and seek the face of the Lord, and to take up the cross of Christ. Father, indeed, love us, strengthen us, chasten us when need be. May you indeed always finish the work which you have begun in us. We plead these things in the name of Christ Jesus, the only true Savior, and amen. In this writing in Malachi, the fourth chapter, if you'll notice in verse 5, there's a prophecy in which Malachi says, the Lord spoke, saying, I will send the prophet Elijah unto you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Now in the New Testament, Jesus himself tells us twice in the book of Matthew, if you look with me first, Matthew chapter 17, but also in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus twice tells us that this Elijah was actually John the Baptist. Now one word of caution, in the day of Jesus, as you'll notice here in this 17th chapter, the Jewish teaching and, and the scribes taught that Elijah himself would physically manifest himself at Jerusalem announcing the birth of the Messiah. But we know that that was not true. That was an erroneous teaching. That was heresy. But if you remember, Elijah was taken up in a whirlwind, a chariot of fire, and just whisked away and never died. He appears in the ninth chapter of Luke with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah meeting with Jesus, discussing his decease that should be accomplished at Jerusalem. And so Jewish culture and Jewish teaching among the scribes and the priests had taken on this notion that in the day in which the Messiah would come, that Elijah would return in like manner as he went. And if you'll go back and read that Old Testament account, we understand that as Elisha, as well as the men of Jericho, what witnessed, Elijah was taken up in a whirlwind. The ground shook and the lightning and, and the thunder roared and the dark clouds gathered. What we would occur or think of as a whirlwind, a tornado perhaps of mass proportions just ripped through the area and suddenly Elijah was gloriously and majestically taken unto the Lord. Just a word of caution. The Jews were wrong. They mutilated that prophecy. And what they were looking for would never ever happen. And so I give you a word of caution today as we look for the coming again of the Lord Jesus and we look at all manner. There are tons and tons and thousands upon thousands of books written. 
about the end of the age, all of the eschatology teachings. People have made tremendous amounts of money, and there's all manner of wild ideas about what all is going to transpire. I'll give you just one word of caution. Elijah himself did not appear, but a prophet in the office of Elijah, namely John the Baptist, did appear. My particular and personal convictions about it, as Jesus said to his disciples, he said to the scribes of the day, he said to the priests of the day, he said to the Pharisees of the day, he said to the Sadducees of the day, my kingdom is not of this world. Christ is not interested in the earth. He is only interested in the redeemed of the, and beloved of God who dwell in the earth while we are dwelling in the earth. In Matthew chapter 17, the scripture is presented to us. Now this is on the Mount of Transfiguration. And in the ninth verse, Jesus then says to his disciples, They came down from the mountain. Jesus charged them saying, Tell the vision to no man until the Son of Man be risen again from the dead. His disciples asked him, saying, Why then say the scribes that Elias or Elijah must first come? Jesus says, Elias or Elijah truly shall first come and restore all things. But I say unto you that Elijah is come already. They knew him not, but have done unto him whatsoever they listed. Likewise shall also the Son of Man suffer of them. Then the disciples understood that he spake of them of John the Baptist. And so in that prophecy of Malachi, as Malachi closes out that last little bit in the Old Testament, he is announcing the forerunner of Jesus. We can go to the book of Isaiah. John the Baptist was to come as the forerunner, and then Jesus would come. And of course, we know in the New Testament narrative, John the Baptist and Jesus were cousins. John the Baptist was six months older than Jesus. And indeed, John the Baptist did come and preach that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. Now notice that as Jesus speaks to his disciples, he says to them plainly that in verse 11, Elias or Elijah shall come and restore all things. We go back to Malachi chapter 4, uh, four verse 4. And you'll notice that as Malachi is speaking about in the ministry of John the Baptist there, he says in an exhortation to the God's people, remember the law of my servant Moses. So as Malachi is addressing the issue of apostasy in the nation of Israel and the falling away of the people, and particularly that we'll examine in great length in a, further in this meeting, was the corruption of the priesthood, the corruption of the religious leaders of the day. They normalized any number of very wicked practices. And the people became tolerant of it and began to follow after the perversions of the priesthood and the perversions of the scribes. And by the time of Jesus, now going, mind you, this is going on in the time of Malachi. Malachi is not talking about things that are going to come. He's talking about how things were already. And he says, before Messiah come, a prophet shall come to put you in remembrance of my servant Moses to restore the rightful worship and the true and faithful worship of God and to call you to repentance. Now notice this. 
in that sixth verse. He says he shall turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers. Now I want us to examine that very closely this morning. That's peculiar, isn't it? What does he mean, turn the hearts of the fathers to the children? What has that got to do with the priesthood being corrupted? And what does that have to do with the nation of Israel being constantly in turmoil and full of bloodlust? And, and why do the people of God suffer as they do? And why was Israel such an, a wicked nation? What does it mean to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children? We actually have some correlating scripture in the New Testament. Look with me in Ephesians chapter 6. And we look in Ephesians chapter 6. And this might be very familiar with many of you, as we find here the prophet is speaking to us and repeating one of the Ten Commandments. And in Ephesians chapter 6, beginning at verse 1, the scripture says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with thee, and that thou mayest live long on the earth. Now notice verse 4. And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath. What does that mean? Who in their right mind as a father is going to literally and deliberately, purposely provoke their children to wrath and violence? And I'll show you in just a minute, we do it every single day. Provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters, according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in singleness of your heart, as unto Christ. Not with eye service as men pleasers, but as the servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Now in just a moment, we're going to look at the similar passage in the Colossian letter. This is so important that not only did John the Baptist preach part of this, seeking to turn men back to their responsibilities and their biblical duties to family and to home, but it's so important that the prophet, or the apostle himself, felt <coughs> necessary to address this both in the letter to the Ephesians as well as the letter to the Colossians. And notice he says, he's joining it together, honor thy father and thy mother, the first commandment with promise. And that is, if you obey your father and mother, you shall live long on the earth. But then we single out this notion. See, it's peculiar to me in Malachi that he singles out in that sixth verse, the very last verse of the Old Testament saying, there was a need to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. And that seemed to be the first step. That seems to be the important step. And then we have this iteration in the New Testament about how important that is. Look in the Colossian letter. Turn on over just a little bit more and we find there, whenever we look into the 13th, or third chapter, excuse me, verse 18. Wives, submit yourselves unto your husbands as is fit in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives. Be not bitter against them. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. 
You notice that there's a consistent theme we're told directly in the Old Testament that the hearts of the fathers are not towards their children. And in the New Testament, we have this constant and continual counsel about how important it is, and it is particularly the fathers. The mothers don't, we're going to give them a break for just a moment. I'm firmly convinced and thoroughly resolved in my mind that the single underlying premise, if you want one cause of why our society and culture is in the condition that it is in and why it is literally falling apart while we look at it is because men do not know how to be fathers. They don't know how to be husbands. They don't love their wives as they should. They don't love their children as they should. In the second chapter of Malachi, God dresses down, and we're going to look at that in great detail, about the corrupt priesthood that they began to divorce their wives, and God calls it an act of violence against them. In the old Jewish culture, and bear in mind we're talking about the religious leaders, we're talking about the people that were supposed to be spiritual, and yet it says they have turned their hearts against the wives of their youth and done violence to them. And under the old Jewish culture, when a man divorced his wife, he disavowed his children. Now as corrupt and vulgar as this might sound, what it amounted to is a bunch of old men divorced the wives that had given them children and were chasing after a bunch of young women. That's what it amounted to. Do you remember Samuel's account? that his two sons were found to be unworthy to be priests in the temple, and why? Because they refused to allow women to make offerings in the temple until the scripture says they lay with them. That's the priesthood doing that. In our day and age, that's the ministry doing that. This is preachers and others that profess themselves to be ministers of the gospel and profess themselves to be representatives of Jesus Christ. They're into the basis and most depraved conditions of humanity. And also in Malachi it says, You have wearied me for the priests saying those that do evil have done good and exalting them as virtuous. Isn't that the time we live in? I don't believe you're qualified to run for political office in our country anymore until you've been married at least three times, had two mistresses, and at least can vouch and, and show receipts for five or six abortions. We live in a depraved and an apostate nation. Depending on which statistics you listen to. 10 to 20 percent of all pregnancies end in abortion. That's an astronomical number. Now get outside the United States and look at the world as a whole. We think we're doing pretty good. Throughout most of Asia, it's around 60 to 70 percent. Throughout the continent of Africa, again, it ranges around 60 to 70 percent of all pregnancies end in abortion. South America, about 40 to 50 percent. Doing pretty good, aren't we? Reminds you of the fella. Two fellas are walking along in the wood. Friends, bear jumps out. One fella gets down and he starts taking off his shoes. Fella said, what are you going to do? He said, I'm going to run fast as I can. And he said, you can't outrun that bear. He said, I don't have to. I just got to outrun you. 
There's a whole lot of people think their Christianity is like that. I don't have to live to the standard of the Son of God. I've just got to be better than my neighbor or better than somebody else. So we're only doing a half to a third of the abortions all the rest of the country is doing, so we're good, right? Beloved, we are a bloodthirsty country. And then we turn around and look at the percentage of live births. And the last statistics I saw say, and it doesn't matter. It does not matter economic status. It does not matter race. It does not matter any other, all other attributes off the table. You cannot tell professing Christians from the rest of the world. 40%, four out of every 10 live births in the United States and in Canada are to single mothers. If we could gather the statistics, if I could go back to Malachi's day and go to the Jerusalem Chamber of Commerce or whoever's keeping track, their Department of Public Health, I suggest to you the numbers would be almost identical. And so where are the hearts of the fathers? The fathers don't love the mothers. They're always looking for something else. They don't love the children. They won't even give them their own name. Now, How do we expect God to bless us? Why do we get on our knees and plead with God? You know another thing Malachi says to the priesthood? I am so tired of you coming to my altar and crying out your, your alligator tears. And that alligator's not in the Scriptures. But that's what it amounts to. I'm tired of your fake tears shed on my altar begging me to forgive you whenever you have rejected me and refuse to follow my instructions and my commandments. And that is our nation today. We have a man that's supposedly representing our state now in the U.S. Senate claims to be a minister who's publicly said, no, this is no secret. There is, abortion is not at all incompatible with Christianity. Polygamy is not at all inconsistent with Christianity. And just run on down the list, and the worst thing is you go right on up the line, and it's public figure after public figure after public figure, not just politicians. I don't know what an internet influencer is or where they got their credentials but they're carrying influence that's the dangerous part as you've got people out there teaching the most ridiculous and irresponsible things and espousing them as virtuous and there are people believing that they're following after them and that's the nation we live in. That's the world that we live in. And beloved, I'll remind you, we are not supposed to be of the world. We're in it, but we're not supposed to be of it. If you truly want to be a child of God and try to follow after Jesus Christ, I promise you now it's easier than ever to stand out like a sore thumb. We look at this, it was going on at the times we see that we are supposed to love our children. And how do we provoke our children to wrath? All these boys or all these children being born out of wedlock will tell the father there, the sire, because that's really what he is, refuses to acknowledge that child. That's not my child. You can't have my name. Don't name that child after me. I don't want anything to do with him. 
And he denigrates some mother. And beloved, you don't make up for all of this by just by sending some money every month. That's not how this works. God had decreed and set out in order and said that there was to be a man and a woman and they were to come together and be husband and wife. And when children are born, he is to be a father and she is to be a mother. And there are duties and biblical responsibilities and obligations. And God set up a beautiful system, what we generally refer to as the so-called nuclear family. Beloved, that is biblical. That is the model that he used for his own redemption for the church. And it's never, ever failed. You want to know why 11-year-old boys are walking around on the street packing a gun thinking they're a man? That doesn't make any sense to us. But looking into his world, he's never known anything else. Everybody that he could ever look up to or any man that he ever thought showed him any interest whatsoever probably was the one that taught him how to use it, told him that he had all of this respect and better not anybody be dissing him. This is how you fix that. We live in a culture in an age of great violence. And again, I lay it back squarely on, the, on the, uh, the simple basis, the simple solution, that, beloved, men do not know how to be husbands, and they do not know how to be fathers. And that behavior has to be modeled. You cannot read books about it. You cannot watch PowerPoint presentations and learn it. You cannot watch Netflix specials and gain that understanding. Day in and day out, when mom and dad stood before God and those witnesses and said that I betrothed myself unto you and I promise in sickness and in health, in the good times and in the bad, I will love you and stand by you. There was a time that often meant something. Doesn't seem like it means much anymore. In all the years I've been in the ministry, there's a significant list of people I refuse to perform a wedding ceremony. If I hear it even the first time, I mean as a casual comment, an off-the-cuff comment, or if they're deadly serious, and I've had some look me in the eye and just was dead serious about it. We want you to marry us, but if it don't work out, that's all right. I got a lawyer uncle. Divorce won't cost us much. I've had people tell me that. We want to get married in the church, but don't worry. If it don't work out, we've already got a plan about how we're going to divorce and split things up. That's not how you go into these things. That's not the commitment that God made to us. That's not the commitment that Jesus, that God the Son made to God and the Father in that eternal covenant. I remember Jesus Christ talking about redeeming and loving his bride so very much that in the Garden of Gethsemane upon bended knee, sweat rolling off of him as though it were great drops of blood rolling to the ground, praying out, Father, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will but thine be done. Don't understand that he's prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, I'm not sure I want to go through with this and this isn't going to work out. Tell you what, let's just call the whole thing off. We're called to duty and an obligation. 
And if we meant it when we said it, when we stood before God and the witnesses, or stood before God and the minister, or stood before God and the judge, or however it may have transpired, that vow to love my wife until the day she dies or until I die was a vow committed unto God Himself. And God has told us repeatedly that we are to do unto one another as though we were doing unto Him in all of our covenant relationships. From the priesthood on down, if you'll go back and study through the Gospels, you're going to notice there was a consistent theme in Jesus' teaching. Do you notice, or you will notice, perhaps now if you go and read it, you will, it'll stick out. Suddenly you'll notice it if you haven't before how often and frequently Jesus is rebuking the Jews throughout the Gospels about their practice of divorce. It had become so commonplace. It had become so easy. You remember his words when he spoke to the Pharisees? He said, in the beginning it was not so, but for the hardness of your heart and your rebellion against God, Moses wrote you a bill of divorcement. Moses did give a bill of divorcement. Extreme circumstances. Not just the fact that some priest decided he wanted to find him a younger wife, he was tired of the old one. And everybody grows up in that culture and begins to take on that same attitude. You know, there was an advertising campaign when I was much younger in one of the big soft drink companies. And I'm not going to tell you which one. You'll know which one. But in the late 70s and early 80s, they advertised themselves as the drink of the me generation. I've heard some preachers' reports of them saying some pretty disparaging things in the pulpit about chickens coming home to roost. That me generation mess has come home to roost. Malachi was preaching to a bunch of people, said, my wife's not as important as I am. My children are not as important as I am. I'm not going to have them hold me back. And that's the time we live in today. I'll tell you something else that was going on in the time. Israel had gotten this far because they had forsaken God. Israel got that far because they had forgotten where they had come from. Look with me in Leviticus chapter 18. Because I want to say something about the practice of abortion. Have you ever wondered where the daddies are? Where are the fathers? This idea, and I'm going to go ahead and caution you, this is going to be disturbing now, but it's in the scriptures. This is going to be disturbing. But this notion about unwanted children being gotten rid of very readily and easily, oh, beloved, it's old. That ain't no new idea. That's been around a long time. Back when I was an undergrad at Georgia Southern a lifetime ago. Witnessed it with my own ears. Girl come up pregnant. 
roommate down the hall, baby, here's $300, get it taken care of. Back then, 300 bucks and a trip to Jacksonville fixed everything. This is how the old Jews did it. Leviticus chapter 18. Pick up there at verse 19. Let's pick up at verse 20. Moreover, thou shalt not lie carnally with thy neighbor's wife to defile thyself with her. And thou shalt not let any of thy seed pass through the fire to Molech. Neither shalt thou profane the name of thy God. I am the Lord. Thou shalt not lay with mankind as with womankind. It is an abomination. Neither shalt thou lie with any beast to defile thyself therewith. Neither shall any woman stand before a beast to lie down there too. It is confusion. Defile not ye yourselves in any of these things, for in all these the nations are defiled which I cast out before you. And the land is defiled. Therefore I do visit the iniquity there upon it, and the land itself vomiteth out her inhabitants. Ye shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, and shall not commit any of these abominations, neither any of your own nation, nor any stranger that sojourns among you. You notice context? All of these depraved, sinful, and sexual acts and stuck right in the middle. Why? That is not out of place. Why is the command not to allow thy seed to pass through the fire to Molech stuck in there where they're talking about all of these other depraved and very vulgar acts? They're talking about bearing the children out of wedlock. Talking about bearing children without the benefit of a mother and father. I don't care how much he likes her. I don't care how beautiful he thinks she is. If he's not married to her, the scripture has a specific word. You might as well carry it as a title. It's not the child's fault. It's a testament to the depravity and the selfishness of the so-called mother and the so-called father. But mixed in the middle of all of these horrid abominations is the idea, do not let your seed, do not let your children pass through the fire to Molech. Now among the old Hebrews, going all the way back to the time of Solomon, and you can read this in 1 Kings chapter 18. I'm not going to take time this morning to do it. But we do know excuse me, 1 Kings 11, Solomon. Remember King Solomon? Solomon built the temple at Jerusalem. Solomon built some other stuff too. Down in the valley of Hinnom, Scripture says Solomon loved many strange women. Had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Now, by Jewish tradition, the Jewish teaching is that a concubine was one by whom Solomon had a child to whom he was not married. 300 of them. He loved many strange women, women of the Zidonians and the Moabites. 
Women whose scripture had said specifically not to have anything to do with them. And yet he married some of them and then others he just simply had children. Solomon, the great builder. Solomon built at least four temples at Jerusalem. One of them was the temple to our God, to Jehovah. Up on the top of Mount Moriah. Now this is interesting. When you do the archaeology, he built the temple to Jehovah where the temple to Jehovah was built on the mountaintop. But where did he build the other three? Every single one of them was down in the depths of the valley. And the temple at Molech included an altar that was in the form of a brazen bull. It's also known, the valley of Hinnom is known in the larger word Gehenna means death. So Solomon built a temple and put it down in the base of the valley of death and on it was an altar where live human sacrifice was made. And Hebrew women would offer their children and burn them alive, worshiping a false god. Interestingly, Molech was supposedly a you, you cannot make this stuff up. The irony is unbelievable. Molech was a fertility god. You offer your children and burn them alive on the altar so you can have more children. It's ridiculous. Y'all read anything or seen anything in public life lately, reports in the news, that's just absurd? We come on along to the time of, of Malachi. We come along after the Babylonian captivity. The temple's been rebuilt at Jerusalem. The temple of Molech has been rebuilt. In Jesus' day, there were Jews making live human sacrifice of their own children in Jerusalem. Where were the fathers? Why did Malachi, why did God tell Malachi the hearts of the fathers need to be turned to their children? Where were the fathers? I remember the days my children were born. I wouldn't take anything in the world for it. Happiest days of my life. The only one that might eclipse it was the day that she stood right there before me in front of Brother Lindy Webb Sr. and said, I do. But I remember when my daughter was born, I remember that long night when my wife was suffering with preeclampsia. Many of you might remember Dr. Kent. He was a kind and a good friend. Dr. Kent came to me about 2 o'clock in the morning and said, I don't know if your wife's going to survive or not. I don't know if the baby's going to survive or not. Took a turn so fast we couldn't get her transported. But he said, I know she won't make it to Savannah or Augusta. We stood right there in the hallway of the old hospital and prayed. He prayed. I was weeping. Little did we know when that little child was born, I could hold her in the palm of my hand. She only weighed four pounds. She's a happily married woman today. I remember the day my son was born. He was born half grown. 
there wasn't no way anybody was going to take one of them children out and throw them on a fire somewhere. There wasn't no anywhere they were going to take that child from my wife or from me, the one. I don't understand it. To me still, my wife has been a labor and delivery nurse now for going on 30 years, and I'm still amazed. It is a miracle every single time a beautiful, healthy human child is brought into this world. But the measure of the depravity of man and a testament to the apostasy of old Israel, and a testament to our apostasy today, is we don't regard life. We have one political group after another screaming at the top of their lungs. We want abortion free and on demand, and we demand that every woman have at least one. We've got eugenics resurging in Europe, even in the Netherlands as we speak now. In the Netherlands, a mother has to have four different tests. That baby has to be examined four different times, and if it tests positive for any one of seven abnormalities or deformities, she has no choice. That defiled child is aborted. That's a socialized medicine system. She has no say-so. Their goal They're going to eradicate Down syndrome and they're going to eradicate all kinds of other diseases and ailments and infirmities. You know when that fell out of notion was the Nazis during the 1930s. It's back. We had a president not long ago telling us that once you reach the age of 65, you are no longer useful to society. Your days of contributing and productivity are over. We live in a time in which abortion is encouraged and championed as virtuous. You all remember we had a woman ran for vice president a few years back who elected not to abort a Down syndrome child. And do you all remember how she was savaged in the media for being so irresponsible and selfish? Where are the fathers? Where are the men that love life and love mercy? Where are the men that love and fear God? In the day of Malachi, they were in the same place they are right now. They're standing there by her championing the destruction. Get rid of it. I don't want it. I don't love it. I don't want him to have my name. I don't want anybody to know. And then also they're running down the child's mama and they're disparaging her. And I mean, it's just a mess all the way around. Beloved, we're just like the old Jews. It was that way in their day. And so Malachi came to put them in remembrance of my servant Moses and to remind the men that you have a responsibility before God. It's not all about you. It's not about what's convenient for you or what you want or what you desire. You make decisions and then you bear up the consequences of those decisions. So the time in which we live is not new. They said that brazen altar to Molech shaped like a bull. They build a fire under the belly and they throw the children in. The children's shrieks and screams would sound like the bull bellowing. Jerusalem sits on three hills, Mount Moriah, Mount Zion, and Mount Golgotha. 
Valley of Gehenna is in the southern part of the city, just off of Mount Zion, down in the valley. They said the echoes, the bellows of that altar, of that furnace, could be heard for 70 miles. We need to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. How do the fathers provoke their children to wrath? They refuse to acknowledge them. They refuse to spend time with them. They refuse to give them respect. They refuse to tell them they love them. I know in my own experiences with my children, and there's so many of you here that have more experience than I do, you spend time with them. Take a kid fishing. Take a kid out in the woods and just let them wander and explore and climb trees and be children. But let them know all the time you love them, that you're there for them. Every time I do a wedding, I counsel people on this, and I'm going to close this out this morning, and I'm, I'm deadly serious about this. And I don't care how long y'all have been married. How do we turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children and the fathers? Men have got to learn how to be husbands and they've got to learn how to be fathers. And every time I do a wedding, I counsel people telling them, especially the men, be ever so careful about what you say about your wife to others publicly. Don't ever, ever denigrate her. Never. She may not be perfect. And you may have just left the house and you're so fed up, aggravated and frustrated with her, you don't know what to do. There's not another living soul on the earth ever exposed to know about that. Whatever you women say about your husband and whatever you men say about your wives is a direct reflection on you. Choose your words carefully and kindly. Love your children. Let them know they matter and let them know that they're important to you. There's a whole lot more of this in the New Testament. We haven't, we've just scratched the surface. But it is so important for us as men to recognize and to shoulder the responsibility that we have to God in our roles as husbands and fathers. Y'all will, let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we've gathered today, we are indeed thankful. But Lord, though we know we have mispleased you in so many ways, you've promised that you have never forsaken us. So Father, we pray that you will lift us up, that you will hold us in the hollow of your hand. The writing of Malachi also tells us that God has a book of remembrance and he never forgets those who are faithful to him. So I pray that you might find us pleasing in our stewardship. Lord, as we struggle in this low ground of sin and sorrow, as we strive against all of the evil and the wickedness that we see about us, Father, I simply ask that you will give us the strength remain steadfast may we look to your word to gain strength and wisdom and encouragement may we look to you that we can find our refuge 
and that we may also find a sanctuary for our souls. Father, indeed, love us evermore for the sake of Christ. And may we indeed glorify and exalt you as the one true and living God. We pray this in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen.